Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast about how our political institutions are failing us and ideas for fixing them. In each episode, we examine American political institutions and discuss ways to reform them. We imagine and argue over what American politics could look like if we question everything. I'm James Wallner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a lecturer in the Department of Government and School of Public Affairs at American University. I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. I'm Julia Azari. I'm an associate professor of political science at Marquette University, and I'm a contributor at the independent political science blog, Mischiefs of Faction. So today is going to be our impeachment episode. We are recording on October 3rd. Um, about 10 a.m. Eastern Time. I am recording from the Central Time Zone in Milwaukee, uh, which means that I, I can hear my collaborators, but I cannot see them. So today we're gonna we're gonna talk about the impeachment inquiry that was announced last week on Tuesday by um, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. We're gonna give you a little sense of some of the questions that we're pondering with regard to impeachment. So we're gonna start with a little summary of, of what we know so far, the facts, what's going on. Uh, we're gonna talk a little bit about the history of the impeachment remedy. We'll talk about some constitutional implications as well as some political implications. So that's what we have planned for you all today. Um, Lee, I think we're gonna start with you for a quick summary at the, of the facts. And I wanna point out that Lee has a fabulous piece up at 538.com um, about impeachment that just just went up today, um, October 3rd. So, Lee, take it away. Well, thank you, Julia. And uh, perhaps by the time you listen to this, the facts will have changed. But as of now, what, what we know is that there was a whistleblower complaint uh, that uh, described what, to me, looks like uh, the president of the United States trying to coerce the Ukrainian president to uh, dig up some dirt on his on Trump's political rival, Joe Biden, uh, and also trying to get to the bottom of some allegations that uh, the Ukrainians helped Secretary Clinton to try to dig up some dirt on Trump. Now, uh, there's some some suggestion that also Trump was withholding military aid to the Ukrainians as leverage to try to get them to help him out. Some allegations that uh, that Rudy Giuliani was was doing his work there, and and that whistleblower complained and then caused the release of of a transcript of that call, uh, or at least a summary of that call. It seems that that may have been somewhat incomplete. So I, I and that convinced enough Democrats in the House that it was time to open an impeachment inquiry. And uh, and that's and that's where we are. I think over the next few weeks we'll we'll learn a lot more. Uh, so let's jump into the to the history and the politics of this because that's what we're really here for. All right. So I'm going to give a kind of brief summary of how I how I see this, and I actually want to start with where we are and and point out at least what I've been thinking about after listening to it, another uh, another podcast, uh, the Congress Two Beers In podcast with our, our friends of the pod, uh, Matt Glassman and Josh Hooter, we're talking about what it means for Pelosi to have made this announcement about the impeachment inquiry. But, you know, Pelosi does not just get to unilaterally say what the House is doing. 
um, in some ways she was she was asking the six committees that have jurisdiction um, over some of these issues to to go forward with an impeachment inquiry. But in other ways that had, you know, they've already been doing that. So in a lot of ways, this was an action that changed nothing and everything, right? It changed very little formally, but the news cycle um, is symbolically made this look like a kind of concerted house effort. And of course the speaker carries the weight of both being the leader of the chamber and the leader of the majority party. And those obviously are roles that can be complicated and, and conflictual. So that's, an institutional element of, of where we're at. So let's think about this in historical context. I'm going to just give a kind of very general overview. I think that it's really common um, for the two impeachments that have actually gone through Congress. So we've had, let me back up, we've had three impeachments, what I will call impeachment situations in American history of the, of the president. Most recent, Bill Clinton, 1998, four articles of impeachment went went forward out of the House with regard to Clinton's attempts to to cover up or be untruthful about his um, affair with White House intern Monica Lewinsky. Before that, we have Watergate, Richard Nixon, 1974. And of course, this is a, a complicated impeachment situation because Nixon resigned before the process could go forward. And then reaching the furthest back into history, we've got Andrew Johnson, so the accidental president who succeeded Abraham Lincoln, um, impeached in 1868 and acquitted by one vote in the Senate. So when you know when I learned about the Johnson impeachment um, as kind of you know high school and college history student, which was when the Clinton situation was ongoing, we kind of learned that Andrew Johnson was was politically persecuted. This was because he didn't agree with the radical Republicans. Most of the 11 articles of impeachment that were brought against him had to do with the Tenure of Office Act and the firing of, um, of Edward Stanton. And that was that was, that act was, was overturned and it was all kind of ridiculous. And that, you know, that, that sense of the Johnson impeachment, I think really pervades some of the conversation about impeachment. And so it's a similar thing with Clinton. At the time, there was this kind of sense um, and a pretty common media frame that this is a this is a partisan engagement. This is the Republicans going after Bill Clinton. This is ridiculous. He's being impeached for his sex life, and you know, who, I remember people saying this like, "Who hasn't lied about their sex life?" Not a topic that we're going to probably address in politics in question in so many words. But I do think that those two impeachments are generally are generally portrayed as a kind of partisan and trivial joke. Watergate's an exception to this, where its its role in in kind of popular political culture is taken much more seriously as a as an event of um, of administration wrongdoing, as a moment in which the president was held um, held accountable. And also, you know, I think tellingly, Nixon's resignation is was a lot about saving himself. But there was this kind of sense of well, Nixon resigned, so the country was spared a drawn out impeachment trial, and then Ford. His successor pardoned him, and so the country was was spared whatever might have happened had that not been the case. And so we have this sense that impeachment is something that is is partisan, is sort of on the borders of of legitimacy, um, and is really harmful for the nation. And we go into this situation, I think, with all of that, all of these decades of um, of cultural baggage around the question of impeachment. So the way I think about the question of impeachment is that it, it sits very very delicately on this border between holding the president accountable for bad behavior 
And the kind of partisan playing, to use a, a phrase that's quite popular now, to uh, constitutional hardball. And I think that's, that's sort of where we sit. And it is worth noting, in each of these cases, including Watergate, you do have a, a situation where the president and Congress and the, you know, the control of Congress are by different parties and the seats of power have conflicting political interests and ideologies. And that's, I think that's really notable. That's even true. It's even true for Watergate. Eventually, Republicans did turn on Richard Nixon, but it took a long time. And it seems unlikely to me that had there been this counterfactual Republican Congress in the mid-70s, that, um, that, that the inquiry would have gotten to that point. So that's, that's kind of my big picture perspective. I'm going to stop monologuing now um, and let someone else weigh in and talk a little bit about um, what the, the implications here about where it is, you know, where does impeachment fit in, um, some constitutional implications, norms, values, et cetera. Well, thanks for that, Julia. But one of the things I find helpful is to step even further back because a lot of the uncertainty that we've experience around impeachment, I believe, arises from its source in the Constitutional Convention at the beginning of the Republic. And the word impeach means to accuse. So the House is the one, the, the chamber that accuses a government official, in this case, the President of the United States, of, of an act that they think is impeachable. The Senate then, according to the Constitution, has a trial, and it's a two-thirds majority to convict. And the punishment can be is removal from office. And then in addition to that can be on majority vote, disqualification for future office. And this is something that hasn't been used all that much. I believe it's something like 19 impeachments in American history, perhaps. And only eight, to my knowledge, have been eight officials have been removed. They've all been judges, lower level judges. So it's, it's not much. It hasn't been used all that much. And one of the reasons is that it's not clear when you're supposed to use it. So treason is one of the things that you can impeach for. It's well-defined. It's defined in the Constitution. Bribery is defined in common law. That's well, um, well understood. But this notion of high crimes and misdemeanors, which is where we generally go to when we talk about impeachments, that a president in this case or should be impeached because they've committed high crimes and misdemeanors. Well, what does that mean? In the Constitutional Convention, George Mason said it should be maladministration, and that was a little too far-reaching. And so they adopted the British phrase, high crimes and misdemeanors, and there's a lot of baggage there. And so even the, the term itself, it's, it's unclear what you're supposed to impeach for. But that, I believe, is part of the plan, because at the end of the day, you decide when and where to impeach inside Congress. It's a deliberative act in a self-governing community. The citizens or their representatives have to decide when it's appropriate to use an extraordinary tool like impeachment. And if you try to define it beforehand, it's going to be overly restrictive and it's going to not be used all that much or it'll be used too much. And in either case, it becomes entirely worthless. And so I think what the framers were going for, and I've, this is a theme that I keep touching on in this podcast in our conversations, is that they were trying to figure out a way to make it safe to use this power. And and that's the way I kind of approach this issue and, and approach whether or not, you know, when people debate whether or not someone should be impeached. It's not necessarily that the impeachment itself is problematic. It's that, well, whether or not in this environment, Let's listen to the arguments on both sides, and then we decide, should that person be impeached? So 
if we think about the bar for impeachment, it's a it's two thirds of the votes in the Senate, which is a very high bar. I think that the framers, when they thought about this power, you know, they wanted they didn't want the, the the Congress to abuse the power, so they wanted to create a high bar. But also in their their sort of theory of checks and balances of the branches being at odds with each other, potentially, they, they saw the uh, Congress as holding the executive accountable and the executive as holding Congress accountable. What they didn't anticipate was that there would be political parties and specifically that there would be two political parties that would be roughly equally balanced. So to have a two-thirds majority means that both parties have to more or less agree, or at least half of one party has to agree with the whole of the other party. And the problem is that the president is of one of those two parties. So in the case of Andrew Johnson, uh, he was a Democrat, the, the the Republicans had a strong majority, but not not enough to convict him. In the case of Nixon, he was only 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 gave up and resigned when it was clear that Republicans were going to turn against him. For Bill Clinton to be convicted, a lot of Democrats needed to vote against him, and they weren't going to do that. And now again, we're at the this same moment with Trump, where in order for Trump to be convicted, a lot of Republicans have to turn on a president of their own party. Now, we're at a moment in which partisan loyalty is is especially high, which is why the conventional wisdom is that Republicans are not going to turn on Trump. So the the fact that partisan loyalty is higher than institutional loyalty, especially at this moment, but I think broadly throughout American history, I think kind of creates an even even higher standard for that that two-thirds impeachment. And you know, I, I do wonder if the framers ha- had anticipated that we would have this two-party system, whether they would have had such a high bar for impeachment. And one other piece of kind of historical qualification here is that I do think there's a difference between the Clinton impeachment and those that came before, namely Nixon. Or, and when I say those, I'm speaking of the presidential impeachments, uh, Nixon and Johnson. It seems to me that with Johnson, impeachment is a tool. It's designed to, the House is using it to push back against a president that they think is either overstepping his bounds or doing things they don't approve of. And it ultimately works, right? The result of the impeachment trial in the Senate, even though Johnson is acquitted on three of the 11, I believe, articles of impeachment, and then they end up dropping the rest, the result is that Johnson is quiet for the rest of his administration. You don't and, hear. And he, and he doesn't even get to the, his own party's nomination. Right. So, you know, right. mission accomplished for the radical Republicans, right? So I think that's an important thing to consider. The other thing to consider is with the Nixon administration, uh, the Nixon impeachment, I take your point, Julia, about uh, the Republican Congress and the Democratic Congress and, and what are the hypotheticals there, the, the counterfactuals. But it is also important to acknowledge that out of that that environment at the time of the 70s was one of immense congressional oversight of, of, of administrative action. You had this notion that Congress should push back against the executive in a whole host of areas. And so while, yes, it, the Republicans may not necessarily have been quick to impeach Nixon for the Watergate stuff, it is kind of just an extension of this ethos at the time that many Republicans, if not most or all Republicans, had fully adopted, which is that we need to be conducting vigorous oversight. We need to be pushing back against the, the administration. We need to be reasserting the power of the purse. It seems to me that that was a bipartisan determination. So fast forward to today, 
There's this notion that impeachment as a tool is inappropriate, harmful, and potentially destructive. And then there's a notion that the Congress doesn't do oversight. It doesn't push back against the executive. The Congress pushes things to the executive instead. And I think when you combine those two things together, it makes the it makes it very, very hard, even in addition to the partisanship questions that Lee's mentioned, to conceive of impeachment being used seriously and successfully. Well let me jump in here. So the I, I just want to add to to Jim's point here about um the executive because I think there's a there's a critical inner branch point here, and that has to do with the role of the president. And this is both baked into, I think, the design of the executive branch, where the, it's it's very clear that part of the goal of having a president is having an independently elected president is to sort of ensure some administrative stability, and that that's you know that is part of the the argument for having that office. But it's also it also comes out; it's become a bigger part of the inner branch situation now, right? So the, the country has become more and more presidency-centric. And that means it's even more destabilizing over time to think about the idea of removing the president. And I want to, at some point, get to the, this question of like what happens um, when you do remove a president and what the politics of that are in 2019 and what they've been in some of these other cases. But that's, to me, I think really what's what's gone on here in addition to the growth of partisan conflict and polarization is this sort of decline not just a, not just a decline um that jim described in the congress asserting its institutional prerogative but a kind of alongside simultaneous growth of the importance of the presidency as a center of, of government and the center of stability and i think part of this is that there's two i tweeted about this at one point there's these kind of two conflicting ideas that come out of the federalist papers and one is that the presidency is a seat of governmental administrative stability and the other is that when push comes to shove that the political incentives will align in ways that make it possible to hold governing officials accountable, and they'll align in a way that that goes with good government. And the public is sort of, you know, maybe not always attentive, maybe factionalized, but like they'll know a serious abuse of power when they see one. And I think that that is not compatible with the growth of, of a powerful executive. I think there's maybe, and this is a particularly kind of 1980s and afterward phenomenon, that the, the president is people's kind of symbol of the stability of, of the country. And the idea of removing the president is very unsettling. Um, and in that sense, I think also it's quite telling how much support there is in public opinion polls, even, you know, it's over 50% for the idea of an inquiry. That's very telling, but I think it is an uphill battle to sell the public on accountability and removal in this way because the, because the implications are so unstable and unsettling for the polity as a whole. Yeah, and I'd like to put a final point on that, sorry, Lee, a uh, finer point on that, which is ironically in the 20th century, and certainly in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, you have this growth of the bureaucracy of the civil service. Hannah Arendt calls it the rule of nobody. And so in some respects, the president is less important today than the president was in, say, the 19th century or the early 20th century in terms of ensuring administrative stability, because this entire world has grown up around the president in terms of the administrative state. And this isn't a comment on whether the administrative state is good or bad. It's just an observation. And so if you get rid of the president, the administrative state's still there. 
And it seems to me that whoever comes in is going to be a lot weaker politically. So in many respects, they have to rely even more on the career civil servants, the bureaucrats. What makes people unsettled, I think, about getting rid of the removing a president midterm is that today, most of the policymaking action has shifted to the White House in terms of executive orders, in terms of appointments to the federal judiciary and other things. And so the idea is that if we if we get rid of a president midstream or midterm, we are going to lose our ability to shape policy. And that's bad because that's how we shape policy today. And so I think, I mean, I'm not sure people would put it in those terms exactly. And so that when it, then you have to then juxtapose, well, this is the policy I want. These are the crimes and high misdemeanors of which the president has been accused, which, you know, in addition to are they correct and impeachable, the other consideration is, well, do they outweigh the policies that I want? And so now all of a sudden you have this other calculation going on. Well, so I, I, Julia, I want to pick up on your point about the, the symbolism of the presidency as, as, as our politics has become so presidency focused and the presidents themselves have become so polarizing that to, depending on who you are, Trump is either a hero or a devil. And so even though administratively, if Trump were removed and, and Mike Pence became president, you would wind up with a, a somewhat similar ad administrative policy in a lot of areas, you would have a sense that, oh, Trump is not our president anymore, which for, for many people who have spent several years feeling like he's a, an embarrassment or a, an incredible risk, people would feel a little bit more relieved, although surely they would be ginned up to, to, to feel that Pence is the same kind of threat given our partisan environment. You know, similarly, people who have put their entire faith and hope in Trump as a savior would just would just feel devastated. So regardless of of the policy state and the continuation of the policy state, there is this symbolic emotional nature about impeachment that I think is it is something that is somewhat unique to the modern era in, in the sense that, that everybody is paying such close attention and so emotionally invested in in the symbolic fights over the presidency. Yeah, I think that makes good sense. So um, I think right now what we should do is maybe move a little deeper into this um, this question about the politics of, of removal, some of the questions that uh, that have been raised so far. Um, and what would, you know, kind of what would happen? What is the end game here? There's two interesting things. And one is, I think this impeachment pro provides a real challenge for political science, because a lot of our way of thinking about the world involves thinking about political incentives. And lately, we've been kind of shifting into thinking about norms and, and values a little bit. And I think impeachment challenges both of those. No one really wants to think about impeachment in terms of political incentives. I think that is the right way to talk about it, but it, it feels kind of gross. And in terms of thinking about norms and values, as I said, I think that the norms of the past are difficult to apply here, both because the political environment is different, but also because the nature of this specific inquiry is shaping up, I think, to be quite different from the two cases that have actually gone through Congress. And so James suggested we should think about Clint the Clinton inquiry as being separate from the other two. I'm not I'm not sure that I'm totally sold on that view, in part because the, the articles of impeachment were similar to the ones that had come out of the Judiciary Committee for Nixon, not identical, 
Um, but this idea of abuse of power and obstruction of justice was clearly drawn from from the the Nixon years. Um, but so also to hear, my, I, sorry, Julia, but I, my point was mainly that the environment in which the Clinton impeachment occurred, I think, is different than the environment in which all of the impeachments prior occurred. And in the in those two respects, the idea that impeachment is a tool that is now illegitimate, and the idea that Congress is somehow a muscular institution in its own right that can push back against the presidency. But no, I take your point very, very well that they are in terms of they're very similar in other respects. Okay, that makes yeah, that makes more sense. Thanks for clarifying. So yeah, that's I mean, hmm. Um, okay, now I've lost my train of thought. Um, right. So here's where I want to to take this this conversation is let's actually think about what would be the kind of end game if we do get to a point. We're gonna kind of skip over who's you know is this gonna happen or not. Maybe we'll, we'll do a little round robin at the end of of do we think what do we think of the chances for removal. But let's imagine that this has gone through the House and it's now in the Senate and it's looking like it might be successful or we might be looking at a resignation. Who succeeds Trump? So Lee just mentioned Pence. Pence is sort of the obvious, is the obvious person as the vice president. What are some other scenarios that might happen? Right. So uh, the th- the third in line is is Pelosi, Speaker of the House, is third in line. So uh, I mean, the, the question is whether Trump, and I think I think you already see this happening, is that Trump is is trying to to drag Pence into this and trying to say, well. Pence was involved in this too. So if you take me down, you are also going to take down Pence, and then you're going to wind up with President Pelosi. And as a way of signaling to Republicans, you better not take me down. Now, of course, if Mitch McConnell really believes in the long game, Republicans probably have the best chance of winning in 2020 if they're running against President Pelosi. Uh, but I, I don't think they want that as an outcome. So I think that that creates that, that i mean trump is trump's strategy is is if he gets pushed against a wall he's going to throw everybody under the bus and try to create so much collateral damage that that becomes a a very powerful threat not not to impeach him uh but i i, I think if and the, the what i what i wrote in in the, the piece on 538 is basically that if republicans turn against trump they're going to turn against him very quickly and as a whole, because nobody wants to be out there alone. So one of the things that I think is, is interesting about, about the Nixon case is that Ford was vice president. He was the, the first and only vice president appointed under the provisions of the 25th Amendment, which at that point was, you know, what, seven years old? Or five, I guess, when six, when um, Ford was appointed. So that's, you know, this is a possibility. And this to me just seems like so far beyond the realm of anything that might actually happen, where you where you have a president who sort of sees that this is this is happening, the vice president is going to be implicated, and so prior to resigning or being removed from office, appoints a new vice president under the 25th Amendment. That's obviously not exactly how it went down for Nixon, but I think that would be how it would have to go down in this situation. If we, you know, I can't really imagine a scenario in which Pence resigns, but you know, perhaps he's asked to step down or whatever, and then as some someone convinces Trump that he needs to appoint someone as vice president. And then I'm trying to imagine, you know, who would be, who would be even a possibility there? He's going to appoint Ivanka or something crazy like that, um, and Congress would then both chambers have to approve that person. So that's a really difficult scenario yeah. to imagine, but it is, it is a formal institution that's built in maybe to address this kind of problem. I think it's yeah, really, I think it's un- um, unlikely unlikely in general 
if you have an administration-wide scandal that the president goes down and the vice president doesn't. That seems just given the, mo- the nature of the modern vice presidency, that's really challenging. Um, and this idea of President Pelosi, I think, even would, would unsettle, back to my point about instability, be unsta- unsettling even to Democrats who would see that as potentially an illegitimate cross of, of party lines, of institutional lines. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not really sure. I haven't seen any polling on that, but it strikes me as something that would really unsettle people. So in normal in normal times, one would imagine that the end state would inform or play a role in the decisions you make on how you get there, right? So the idea of President Pelosi or President Pence or President whoever, that person, that identity is going to have some role in whether or not you vote to impeach and whether or not you vote to uh, to actually convict in the, in the Senate. That's going to matter. I think today, though, it's slightly different. And the reason is that... Uh, and I want to come back to the Democrats being divided as well issue, but we have this politics of scandal today where we don't adjudicate issues. We push them away from the places where adjudication is okay and safe, right? So we push them away from Congress and we push them to the, the presidency and then we push them into the courts. And so the public doesn't get to adjudicate issues. The bases of the parties don't get to adjudicate their issues and everything becomes about scandal. And the way you win in American politics today is through scandal. And so impeachment in this environment seems like the natural outcome in terms of the tool is a tool, right? But it's it's one that you don't necessarily think about what the next step is because you may be concerned if you're a, a, a highly motivated member of the resistance, all you're concerned about is Trump because you haven't had an opportunity to adjudicate maybe not necessarily the election that's already happened, but what about all of these policies that Trump is, is doing via executive order? Similarly with conservatives under President Obama. If Congress is debating these policies, if there are votes, some of which go the opposite way, then all of a sudden the temperature, I think, goes down on a lot of this stuff. And then you create an environment where people can think to the future and say, okay, if we do go through this, what's gonna happen in the end? And is that something that's either better or worse? And I just don't see that calculation happening now. I just want to say one quick thing, which is these are two ways you could you could contemplate the decision that's facing members of Congress, and particularly Republicans in the Senate, who are going to be the pivotal actors. And one is, I think James put it, is do you prefer the status quo to the alternative? And the other way that I've been thinking about it is, what is is there a legitimate endpoint for this? And it's like every every possibility I can think of has major legitimacy liabilities. And I think those are two separate ways of conceptualizing that question. The legitimacy question is great. So I wanted to actually pick up on 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 something you had said a little earlier about what, what can political science and what can political incentives tell us. And uh, I mean, there's obvious electoral implications for this. Uh, in that the the easiest explanation for why Republicans haven't turned on Trump at this point, even though my sense is that most most of them privately would prefer to have him out and see him as a as an albatross for for the party, is that Trump is popular among Republicans, and those who have challenged Trump have been primaried or have have just resigned because they saw the writing on the wall, and if Trump becomes unpopular then Republicans are are going to suffer serious 
losses in the 2020 election because Trump is the Republican Party. He is the Republican brand. And people are going to be not likely. A lot of Republicans will just feel disgusted and stay home. And a lot of others will just say, you know, I can't vote for the Republican Party of Trump. Whereas if they defend him and go attacking Democrats, they will be more likely to avoid a primary challenge and will be more likely to to have Republicans do well in the in the 2020 midterms. So that's the obvious electoral calculus. Of course, that could that could change very quickly if at some point Trump's popularity hits. Uh, I don't know what what would be a, a threshold, 30 percent, below 30 percent, maybe. You, know, you could see Republicans turning on him very quickly to the point where we got to get rid of this guy. But ultimately, it's an electoral calculus. The problem is that it's it's the, the popularity is contingent on what political actors do. So as soon as Democrats, in uh, as soon as Nancy Pelosi said, well, actually, th- this is impeachment, even though it's more or less the same thing, suddenly popularity for impeachment rose considerably, about 10 points. Uh, and most of that jump up was among Democrats who now were getting clear signals. Among Republicans, it's it stayed very low. But if suddenly a bunch of congressional Republicans and commentators said, actually, Trump deserves to be impeached, Trump's popularity would tank. And then I think in, in order for impeachment to be legitimate, it would have to be very clearly bipartisan that most Republicans would have to say, yeah, you know, we made a mistake with Trump. Uh, and we're moving on. If there's division, that fuels the illegitimacy. And that's why so much in our politics feels illegitimate, because we have one party that says something is legitimate, another party that says something is illegitimate, whether it's voter fraud or voter suppression or the Electoral College, right? We have a, we have a partisan divide and people are getting very different different signals about what's legitimate and what's illegitimate. But it's not it's not necessarily that the parties are there and they believe things very strongly. I think it's because we don't have a process that allows for things to be legitimized. The whole point of our process is to reconcile losers in the debate to the outcome. And when you don't have a process and you instead make decisions in places where you can't see what's happening, and one person or nine people in robes get to make these decisions, what ultimately happens is no matter the outcome, some people are going to find it illegitimate. American politics has coexisted with political parties that have deeply held and passionate views in the past. The difference is that today's parties are unwilling to allow the process to work out. And on that front, ironically, it's very bipartisan. They see politics almost the exact same way. And it's a highly personalized enterprise. It's it's focused, hyper-focused on scandals. So yes, when you impeachment becomes about Trump, it becomes about the Republican Party, it becomes about all of the policies you support, it becomes about control of Congress. Everything's wrapped up in one because there's nothing, no way for you to di- differentiate those things. And so it, in that environment, impeachment is is something else entirely. And it almost ensures, I think, what Lee's saying, which is you get these unified parties in it. What's interesting to me, though, is that the Democrats up to this point haven't been that unified around impeachment. And I think Pelosi's announcement of an impeachment inquiry was meant to both appease the base a bit and say we are doing something while actually continuing to do what they were doing. And it ended up taking off. It ended up getting a lot more attention than I think people anticipated. And so if the Democrats coalesce around the fact that we should have an impeachment, that's the only missing piece we have right now. And if that happens, then this scenario Lee envisions, I think, plays out. We get an impeachment in the House and an acquittal in the Senate. That seems kind of like the, you know, the, the dominant interpretation. So 
I want to wrap this up. I'm, I I just want to push back a little bit on the idea that this this particular problem with regard to impeachment is a feature of contemporary politics. I think you're right that the processes of disagreement and deliberation are pretty seriously stressed in contemporary politics. But what I think is distinct about impeachment is that the process has really never is has really never been trusted or legitimate or stable, and the kind of deliberation and kind of you know, public conversation about what constitutes an impeachable and removable offense, that conversation was not productive in the case of Andrew Johnson. It was certainly not productive in the case of Bill Clinton, and it could have been productive in the case of Richard Nixon, but it didn't happen. So in order to be productive, things need to happen. This is this is a mantra for academics today also. So that's, you know, that that's kind of how I see it. I see a lot more continuity here than change. And I think that what's unique about the situation isn't just the hyper-partisanship, but also the nature of the Trump presidency and what actually happened, which we've you know spent very little time on, which is fine. So I want to let either of you jump in with a final comment on that topic. And then I want to move kind of deeply into the, the political 2020 implications and kind of consider the impact of this on the, um, on the Democratic primary specifically. Yeah. I- and I, I take your point, Julia, and I think that's correct. The, the one thing I would add, though, is that we have these impeachment is an unsettled kind of thing. It always has been and it always will be. It's the nature of the of the animal. But what's key is that you decide if it's unsettled or not in that particular instance via the process. And so in the Johnson process, you're right, something happened and there was an outcome and they decided that that was not a good way to go forward. It accomplished its goal, but it wasn't a good way to go forward. With the Nixon, arguably it worked. The process was playing out and Nixon saw the writing on the wall. And they had this understanding as it unfolded, as Lee says, as it unfolded that it convinced more Republicans, it convinced more Americans that something untoward had happened and therefore Nixon's support and his own party went lower and lower and lower. And so the process allowed to us to get a better understanding of what impeachment should be. And with the case with Clinton, it's the same in reverse, right? The idea that, yes, this is a perjury. Is that impeachable? Probably. Is it grounds for impeachment? Probably. Should you impeach? Probably not. You know, it's you. Ha- these are all kind of judgment calls that you have to arrive at in the process as it plays out. But but ultimately, as we like to say in in political science analysis of impeachment, it is a political question, and that two thirds threshold is really high when it's very rare uh, that any that either party has two thirds of the seats in the Senate. Although with so many Democrats running for the Senate, uh, the presidency, there's no official recusal uh, mechanism in the Senate. You don't have to recuse yourself. But it seems to me that that would be very problematic for someone who's challenging the president to to sit in trial and vote to remove the president from office. So that would presumably lower the number of votes needed to to impeach. So maybe more if you're a Republican, they should get all of the Democrats to run for president. <laughs> All right, so, let's right, let's let's bring yeah, this. Let's, let's bring this home here. Um, this is a great transition to. Well, this is weird. One more thing about this: this is weird is that it's taking place with a first-term president in contrast with Clinton and Nixon, who is running for re-election, who is facing a very complicated and diverse primary field. So, 
there's you know there's a couple of things I want to talk a little bit about here. One is the the political story, um, the sort of conventional wisdom that um, that impeachment is a political liability from which Democrats are going to have to um, escape. And also this kind of question about what is it, you know, is this going to affect Democrats positioning in the primary? What does it even say about our politics that we're even we're thinking about this? Um, and can can contestation within the party actually be useful on this question? Could this be a useful part of the deliberative process or will this inevitably be posturing and attack ads and just, you know, trivial and, and shallow kind of um exercise. So those are some of the questions I was thinking about. Either when you want to jump in and well, share thoughts. Well, the other thing that, that makes this unique is that the impeachment inquiry uh, stems from, well, I guess, I guess in, in some ways it is similar to the to the Nixon impeachment inquiry that it's about digging up dirt on your political opponent. But it, it's by having the impeachment inquiry out there, it, it's hard to talk about it without talking about Hunter Biden, which presumably, I think, hurts Joe Biden, although some people think it might help him. So I think that certainly complicates the Democratic primary and probably hurts Biden and helps Warren. So we're, we're, we're in weird, uncharted territory, but that's, that's 2019 for you. It's every year <laughs> in American politics. Yes, it's the weirdest year yet. The weirdest year yet. Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about how this is going to push... Democrats who, you know, they have a debate in like a week and a half to make statements. And in some ways, it's like, who could be less relevant to ask about impeachment of the president than the person who's running to replace the president via the election process? But I do think that this is a kind of position-taking situation for Democrats. And I don't say, I don't want to say opportunity because I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of liability here, but it exposes this question among Democrats about caution and about how to be, um, how to be a competitive party in this in this contemporary era? We've certainly talked about Francis Lee's work about this this new era of close partisan competition in, in Congress, and I think that's sort of you know in presidential elections too is the case, and that's really at work here. Is is that the Democratic field is is working out how to be a party in that environment, um, and how much to to take a kind of anti-Trump stance how much to focus on Trump, how much to be confrontational um, versus to emphasize common ground and emphasize that they've worked with people, you know, maybe not necessarily Trump, but other um, other actors with whom they disagree with Republicans, et cetera, and kind of move back to this norms in, in politics. I think impeachment has implications for that. And I think that that'll it'll push Democrats to take positions on that. And my concern is that this environment is not going to be conducive to a thoughtful or well-considered conversation. Um, I, I think that there's really the intersection of, of impeachment and big, messy, competitive primary has got some grim implications. Yeah. Well, certainly all Democrats are, uh, I think are, are going to strongly come out in favor of impeachment uh, I mean, there's a there's a strong pressure on party unity there. That's that's um, I, I mean, in, in, in some ways, the more interesting question is, is what happens in the Republican primary at this point? Do you see one or two more folks getting in thinking that maybe maybe if if, if Trump's going to go down, now's the time to get in? Do you see Mark Samford starting to, to who seems like the most plausible of the of the three challengers to me? 
uh, starting to to gain any momentum. It's puzzling to me that, I mean, it's okay, it's only been a week and a half, but it's puzzling to me that this isn't something that's getting more play. You know, I wonder to some degree if impeachment actually doesn't take some of that pressure off. Um, if Republicans are looking at this and thinking, well, Trump is going to be weakened, he might end up being removed, he might end up resigning. So instead of having a primary, maybe this is our this is our valve to move on from this administration. Yeah, but I'm not sure that when you when you identify the party, when you identify yourself with the party and you identify the party with the president, impeaching the president is an impeachment on yourself, which I think is why you see the initial reaction to this among Republicans. It unifies them. And and that's why I think it's, and Lee's correct in his analysis, and I think that the only thing we're missing now is a unified Democratic Party behind the accusation. And once that happens, then we then it's going to happen. And so I'm not sure that you're going to, in this day and age, it doesn't mean it can't happen, but the idea of a competitive presidential primary for an incumbent president is is very remote. And then to have that happen during an impeachment hearing, I think, becomes even more remote. I think the logic's there. But for that to happen and for it to happen successfully, it would have to be on the the same way you would defeat Trump in the 2016 primary. You have to campaign for the votes of the voters who like Trump. You have to speak to them about the policies that he's speaking about. You have to reject the status quo in the same way that he was at the time, at least. And I don't see a Republican Party right now that is prepared to have that debate because they're divided on it. And, and so we don't talk about these policies at all. No, I think that's I think that's right. And I think, you know, as I'm sort of thinking about this, that the impeachment provides a safety valve for Republicans who have reservations about Trump to outsource the political costs of thinking about replacing him over to the Democrats who are leading the impeachment charge. Um, so in that way, I think it actually works against the primary challenge in this weird, um, as James described, kind of presidency-centric party politics way, um, in a way that allows them to, to once again dodge some of the substantive questions that Trump's candidacy and presidency have raised within the party. So I, I want to close this up. I guess we're going to do, we're going to go around and sort of say what we, what we think is going to happen or might happen. What, are, what is the likelihood of um, any of these outcomes being the one that, that occurs? Um, so Lee, why don't you go ahead and get us started on that? What do you think what do you think is going to happen? I, I think the most likely thing that happens, and I'd give us about 85% probability, is that goes to the Senate and Republicans vote in unity to dismiss the charges. For me, I'm going to be watching timing. It seems that Pelosi's clear play, I think most people agree, was how do we prolong this long enough for someone to win at the ballot box and, and replace Trump via an electoral mechanism? Incidentally, if you don't defeat Trump, that creates a weird situation where you may have a president who's just been reelected and the base of the party is demanding action because you've been dragging it out for so long and you're in kind of Nixon territory and it may not end the same way. So that's the timing there is interesting. If it gets to the Senate, what I find interesting as well is Lisa's this notion to dismiss the charges. You see rumblings of this amongst Republicans, Republican leadership right now. Let's move to dismiss these charges, McConnell says, in an offhand way. It could be a very short trial. But I'm not sure that makes 
political sense for them. Because at the end of the trial, you have a vote on an article of impeachment. And that article has to be approved by two thirds of the members present and voting. That's a high bar that is very unlikely to be met given the information we have right now. As long as that holds, then the rules are very clear. It says that Trump's been acquitted. He's still been impeached, but he has now been acquitted. Versus if you move to dismiss, you are, it's it's not necessarily like a cover-up per se, but you're, one, Republicans are making themselves guilty by association in the eyes of a large number of Americans. Number two, you leave this kind of cloud of suspicion over the whole enterprise. Well, what happened? What, you know, should he have been impeached? Should he not have been impeached? And you do nothing to remove that from the national narrative, which I think really helps the the Democrats in the 2020 elections. Yeah, and it's, I mean, to, to that point, Pelosi has a, you're right. Pelosi has a strong incentive to to draw this out, and also to bring in as many witnesses as possible. I mean, there there's a parade of ex-Trump administration officials who I'm sure have a lot of things to say about Donald J. Trump that are not particularly flattering to the man. What do you think, Julia? So I see. I, I see there's kind of two possibilities here. And one is that the, the cleaner one is that this sort of ends in the election, as, as you both mentioned, and that, that ends in a um, in an election loss. I think if, if Trump wins re-election, that gets messy and complicated. But the other scenario I see, which maybe is, is builds out from that and maybe happens prior to the election, is a very messy one. Um, I, that is something I really haven't ruled out a situation in which a lot of administration officials are implicated in which the the succession order is very unclear and in which public opinion moves in a pro impeachment direction and the and the sort of the the clash between the base of the Republican party and the kind of small majority of public opinion we see this in a lot of areas um, and then that clash becomes sharper and louder and i'm gonna probably mix this metaphor in some terrible way in a second but um that i see as a possibility is a real kind of chaotic crisis that doesn't have an obvious resolution so on, on that cheerful note um that's uh that's that's a scenario that i can that i can envision i think we've raised a lot of questions here We've kind of danced around the questions of what actually happened, and I, we may return to that as we get more information. I think we also have raised some questions about the role of the public and the public conversation here that, that might warrant um, further discussion at some point. And, and finally, the, the possibilities for the 2020 election, you know, what might happen there. So those are some things we might want to want to take up and maybe our listeners will want to weigh in on what kinds of um, questions we should consider and in later episodes so i want to close this up um thanks so much to to james and lee for joining me here in this conversation thanks so much to our uh our friends at new america and r street for supporting this podcast and i want to shout out to a former student of mine kyle hoggy who helped me do my setup here on the milwaukee end this has been politics and questions we'll see you next time Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. This show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. <laughs>